Time for short play. Alex, earlier this month marked the 105th anniversary of the Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrine of the beginning of Christ's invisible reign on earth. How did you celebrate? Well, Nick, there are certain ways in which one should celebrate the invisible return of Christ. I personally like to eat some invisible cake with my invisible friends. Hey, speaking of Jehovah's Witnesses, did you make a pilgrimage yet to Beth Sarim? It's the House of Princes. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses, they built that in San Diego for the patriarchs when they resurrect. Hmm. Huh. Well, I... I hope it's fireproof, all that renovation <laughs> of the earth with fire and everything. Or maybe they have fire insurance on it, and they just rebuild I after. I don't know. I see what you did there, Second Peter 3. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> this is Swordplay, and we are your hosts for your Halloween spooktacular episode. <laughs> um, Bible study does not need to be scary. And so I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Habakkuk chapter 1. That's right, Habakkuk chapter 1. So open your Bibles, read the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters, and uh, it shouldn't take you long to read that. And then go back and open up, follow along with us as we ask questions uh, about verse by verse chapter by chapter. So today we'll cover chapter one, and Nick, whenever we start a new book, we do have to talk about who wrote the book, who was the book written to, why was it written. Mm -hmm. So why don't you kick us off here? Who was Habakkuk? You know, we don't know much about Habakkuk. We know his name, and uh, it means something like embrace. Uh, We know he was a prophet. He may have been a musician. Uh, the book ends with some musical directions. 3 verse 19 um, has that. And uh, if you'll remember our Apocrypha discussions in uh, one of the apocryphal works, Bell and the Dragon, in verses uh, 33 through 39 of that little book, Daniel is taken to see Habakkuk for food when he is thrown into the lion's den for a second time. That's right. That's right. An angel comes and he grabs Habakkuk by the hair just after he makes his uh, lunch. And then he, I don't know, teleports him to Babylon (laughs) to give the meal to Daniel in the lion's den and then brings him right back to where he was before. Uh, Yeah, pretty interesting story. You know, early Christian writers, uh, they did assume that Habakkuk was a contemporary of Daniel. And maybe that's why we see Habakkuk's uh, cameo here in the Bell and the Dragon Daniel uh, extra chapter there. And that leads us to the to the discussion of when the book of Habakkuk may have been written then. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, when so there was Habakkuk are written? three possible dates for uh, Habakkuk being written. There's the early date, which would have been during the reign of Manasseh, say in like 697 to 642 B.C., before Christ. Right. And then there's the middle date, and that would have been during the reign of Josiah, uh, sometime 640 to 609 B.C., perhaps. And then there's the late date. That would have been during the reign of Jehoiakim in 609 to 598 B.C., sometime in there. For me... The middle date seems reasonable. Prophetically, Habakkuk sees the rise of Babylon in verse 6. And so this is, I believe, before 
Carchemish, the Battle of Carchemish, 605 B.C. It's before the conquest of Nineveh, <clears throat> 612 B.C. And uh, also, if Josiah is on the throne, the people may, the people of Judah may be thinking, hey, we're good, we're righteous, and you definitely have that flavor in Habakkuk, especially verse 13 of chapter 1, where Habakkuk complains that you're going to use a, a, a nation more wicked than we are, the Babylonians, we're so righteous, right? So, you know, why would God use the godless Babylonians? Well, surprise, uh, you aren't that righteous, and you're <laughs> heading for more rebellion. And so uh, that's my take, and you say? So uh, in verses 6 and 7, the Chaldeans are spoken of as if they are already marching throughout the earth and also dreaded and feared. So my thought is that if they already have a reputation— then it would make sense to me anyway that they have already defeated Assyria. And God's purpose for raising them up now is to destroy Judah. So the defeat of Egypt at Carchemish in 605, as you mentioned, uh, that would leave Judah helpless and pretty much next on the international hit list of Babylon's victims, which would be a terrifying notion indeed. So uh, I take the late date, possibly... Uh, written even sometime after 605, but I do believe it was before the deportation of 598 and obviously uh, before the destruction that will happen in 586. So, different theories out there for when it was written. That does play into interpretation, so we'll see that later on in the book. Now, why, Nick, do you think the book of Habakkuk was written? So, Judah, the nation, is rife with national corruption. Uh, there's international turmoil that is threatening Judah as Babylon is rising as a world superpower, as they are defeating, uh, they'll defeat Assyria, they'll defeat Egypt. And so Babylon is going to have her eyes set on Judah. And even if it is written during the relatively peaceful time of Josiah, a good king, the decline of the kingdom is coming. The last four kings of Judah, they're bad, and they lead the people deeper and deeper into depravity. So judgment is coming, and Habakkuk is tasked with informing the people, hey, Babylon is coming, Babylon is coming. So uh, that's that's what I see here in terms of purpose. Uh, and what do you think? Yeah, I think also there is the idea that um, all of the countries lands and boundaries and dwelling places these are allotments that were decided uh divinely it's called the divine allotment and that idea is found in deuteronomy 32 7 through 9 also acts 1726 um that divine allotment is about to be massively restructured including yahweh's last lingering portion of judah and so i think this letter was written as a heads up to run if you can and to await patiently by faith for a new exodus, relief from slavery that would come in 70 years after Babylonian captivity. But I would argue also that that new exodus that they were awaiting, that didn't really come until Jesus and the church. So that would be uh, my take on the purpose of the letter. Now, Nick, when you look at the outline of the book, how do you see it divided up? Yeah, I, I found a, a neat little outline uh, someone did. I forget who, but 
So chapter 1 is your dialogue. You're back and forth with God, between God and Habakkuk. Chapter 2 is a, a dirge, kind of lamenting what's coming. And then chapter 3 is the doxology, this uh, note of praise. Even though things are going to be bad, God, you're still good. So uh, that's what I came across. You say? Yeah, I think that's right. If you want to get a little more specific, you have Habakkuk talks in the first four verses, and then God answers in the next few verses. And then Habakkuk talks, one uh, twelve through two one, and then God answers, and that's all of chapter 2. And then Habakkuk finally accepts judgment from Yahweh, and he sings about it, and that's chapter 3. So Habakkuk, God, Habakkuk, God, okay, Habakkuk submits, and that's the end of the book. Well, Nick, we get into the text, we start off with verse 1, and immediately we see uh, there is this phrase, it says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. So, is Habakkuk in his oracle, is he seeing uh, people's wickedness through the vision, or is this just stuff he already knows about? Uh, it could be he, he could have been a an eyewitness definitely um, and so this kind of becomes a lament more of a lament uh, to God about the injustice the cruelty the evil that he sees even among his own people yeah you got the good king on the throne taking a middle date but um, the things weren't all cheery and good and all that and so um, but this is this is the age-old problem of evil right? Um, and uh, Josiah, again, he was a good king. He had his flaws. He went up into battle, even though he was told by God through a foreign king, uh, Pharaoh, Necho. He was told not to go into battle, Second Chronicles 35, verse 20 and following. And despite his reforms, Yahweh's anger still burned against Judah, we're told in Second Kings 23 and verse 26. So... Yeah, things weren't that spectacular, even under the good King Josiah. But at the same time, uh, there's a view which pushes Habakkuk's prophecy in, even back further into the early part of Josiah's reign, in which case um, he would have been able, through the vision, to see what was coming. As a prophet, he sees the violence and all the wickedness of Judah that was coming. and so. But the consensus view is Habakkuk did see. Yeah, he was more or less an eyewitness to the wickedness of Judah, uh, even in his day. So, uh, and you say? Yeah, and I think that works with uh, the late date as well, which is what I take. And so, from my view, he would have had a general uh, idea about the corrupt state of Judah, uh, especially right before captivity and destruction. However, uh, since the prophecy starts by saying that this oracle was something Habakkuk saw, um, that's curious be to me because if it was simply an auditory experience, right, he's just hearing from God what to say, uh, then the idea of seeing, uh, that language would be unnecessary. And so there might be a, a side connection here, a little side tangent about Habakkuk's status as a prophet. There's a good case to be made that every true prophet has been to God's throne room and stood before his divine council. By divine council, I mean angelic entourage or heavenly staff team. Now consider Jeremiah 23, verses 16 through 22, regarding false prophets. Yahweh says, Who has stood in the council of Yahweh that he would 
see and hear his word. Interesting how you're not just hearing the word, but you're seeing the word. Now, Jeremiah was a true prophet because he did see the word of Yahweh. In fact, that's when Yahweh reached out and touched Jeremiah's lips. That's in chapter 1. This is part of the backdrop, by the way, for why Jesus is called the word, because he was the visible manifestation of Yahweh in the Old Testament when people encountered Yahweh. Uh, Other examples abound. We know Micaiah and Isaiah. They went to the throne room. Uh, The portable throne room came to Ezekiel, the, the throne chariot. Now, all of that is to say that Habakkuk, being a true prophet, I think he is reporting what he saw in his oracle, probably given to him at an encounter with the divine council, with Yahweh's throne room. And I believe he was made to watch something specific. And he reports uh, not just his general experience of Judah's corruption, but specific actions of evil. And that goes to our, our next question, Nick. What do you... What exactly do you think Habakkuk saw in the oracle as opposed to uh, just here? Uh, the NIV uh, reads received, and I, that's a, a good translation, just emphasizing the nature of revelation, that it is something that is received. And so um, perhaps, and maybe this builds on what you're talking about uh, with the, the divine council vision, uh, perhaps in an uh, ecstatic trance, Habakkuk received this oracle, this burden from the Lord. Um, uh, that's uh, my take. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think he he received it, and uh, in that vision, what he saw was violence, iniquity, wickedness, destruction, strife, contention perverted justice, the suffering of the righteous. This is all just in the first couple of verses. And I think Habakkuk probably knew of these things, but the oracle gave him a vision of what was actually happening, sort of like peeling back the wallpaper to see the black mold that was sitting behind it. It sounds like Habakkuk was made to watch something akin to a real-life horror film or documentary notice the way he cries out he says why do you make me see why do you cause me to look it almost as if he's talking about something involuntary he didn't want to see what he saw but he did and so god made him see that so uh verse three then nick do you think habakkuk when he cries out do you think he's personally crying out for himself or do you think he's speaking on behalf of the people that he's uh seeing it seems to be a personal experience uh, all those personal pronouns i me and all that um just a, a personal expression of his own trouble and uh, and the trouble of his people uh, what do you think yeah i think seeing what he sees in the oracle finally habakkuk says okay i've seen enough save me do something and it seems that yahweh wanted him to see just how wicked judah had become before telling him what he was going to do about it in other words yahweh is helping habakkuk be prepared to see and hear the real shocker of it all that babylon is coming and it's coming with yahweh's approval So speaking of Babylon, we have this phrase here in verse 6 about the Chaldeans. Now, Nick, who were the Chaldeans? 
these are the Babylonians. In fact, the uh, NIV actually makes the interpretive move to call them Babylonians instead of translating uh, the word there as Chaldeans. Yeah, in fact, Chaldeans and Babylonians are used interchangeably in the Old Testament, especially in uh, the book of Isaiah. You can look at Isaiah 13, 19, 47, 1, 48, 14, where they are used in parallel. Babylonia usually refers more often to the land of the empire, and the Chaldeans refer to the specific people group of the empire. Ironically, Israel came into existence as a result of Yahweh taking Abraham out of the Chaldeans. And now, back to the Chaldeans they shall go. You know, divine reversal works in two directions, one for the faithful and one for the unfaithful. That's part of the underlying message within the book of Habakkuk. Now, what else do we have here? So, verses 7, 10... And then 12 through 17, uh, people that are doing kind of their own comparative analysis of the texts, um, if they're looking at different versions, they'll notice that uh, different translations vary between the pronoun that they use, either um, the singular he or the plural they, in reference to the coming enemies. So, Alex, talk a minute about why why do we see these uh, this, this variety of, um, in these translations between he and they when referencing uh, the coming enemy. Yeah, so my New American Standard uses they when describing the coming enemy, which has already been established in verse 6 as the Chaldeans. Uh, the Septuagint, though, uses he in all of these verses, which would point perhaps to a single leader of the Chaldeans, namely King Nebuchadnezzar, And the English Standard Version says both they for the earlier verses, but then switches to he when it comes to the part about nations being collected like fish in a net. Interesting how the he is never named, even though we know from history it's King Nebuchadnezzar who was the ruler of Babylon at the time. I think that in prophetic literature, there is often an intentional blurring between the description of earthly kings and kingdoms and of the spiritual rulers behind or above them in the heavenly realms. You can remember this from Daniel chapter 10, where he talks about the princes, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, even the archangel Michael, he's called one of the chief princes. By leaving the the he unnamed in the book of Habakkuk, it makes ambiguous the description between the earthly king and the coming army and the heavenly powers that mirror the earthly reality. So I think that ambiguity is intentional, and that might be what's happening here in the book of Habakkuk. Any thoughts, Nick? No, that's a very, very interesting take there. Well, Nick, why do you think God mentions when describing uh, the enemy leopards and wolves and eagles uh what's going on here nick are they going to be attacked by dr doolittle (laughs) obviously the babylonians are steve miller fans since they will fly like an eagle right um this is (laughs) highly figurative prophetic language to describe the ferocity of the babylonians leopards and wolves those are hunters predators 
the eagle probably should read as vultures. That's uh, uh, how the NIV translates it, and I think that's right. Those are birds that hover over carrion, right? Dead animals, dead bodies, that sort of thing. So um, I think that's the idea, just the ferocity of the Babylonians. Uh, what say you? Yeah, these are definitely all uh, predator animals, as you mentioned. Technically, in Habakkuk, these are all descriptions of the horses and the horsemen. Uh, it says the horses are swifter than leopards. The horses are keener than wolves. The horses fly like an eagle swooping down to the de- devour. Now, we know that real horses are not any of these things, not even by a long shot. So... We definitely have some hyperbole <laughs> describing the coming armies. However, just as there is an ambiguity at times between the earthly and heavenly king of Babylon, so too is there an ambiguity between the earthly and heavenly powers or armies or weapons of warfare. You know, when Yahweh took down Egypt with plagues before rescuing Israel from bondage through the Exodus, we know from Psalm 78 verse 49 that those plagues were carried out by the power of a band of destroying angels. And I believe those destroying angels are described in other places, like in the book of Zechariah, they're described as horses. And that would correspond probably to the horsemen in the book of Revelation as well. Uh, And just keep this in mind when we see later in chapter 3 that Yahweh is going to mount on his horses. And so there's definitely some heavenly army language being used here. If the original audience, if they did pick up on the same idea, if what I'm saying is uh, true, then the description of the horses for the coming enemy would be more terrifying than just normal earthly army horses. And I believe we discussed this type of uh, prophetic language when we covered the book of Joel in our podcast, so you can look back in the archives for that, audience listener. And that was the idea that Babylon's army would be demonically empowered. And that would be pretty terrifying. So, so any thoughts, Nick? Yeah. No, that's, that's good connections. Well, verse 11, Nick, it says that there's a wind that's going to come through. Uh, but other translations say it's a spirit that's going to come through. Nick, what do you think? Was it a wind or a spirit that swept through uh, as the enemy came through and destroyed nation after nation? I'll lean toward wind, that it's a, a desert wind. That, uh, And I think this idea is uh, picked up in the NIV uh, because there's a, a parallel in verse 9 uh, concerning this desert wind. Uh, so I'm going to lean toward wind in verse 11. What do you think? Yeah, I think there might be a little bit of both going on, I th- which is why... You know, I would say the ambiguity that I've been talking about, it it abounds again. So first, the word for wind and spirit, they're actually the same word. Um, And that uh, is why the context has to drive the interpretation and why some translations will say wind and some will say spirit. You know, in Hebrew, it's the word ruah. And it is uh, both the word for spirit and for wind. In Greek, it's the word pneuma, which is both the word for spirit and for wind. Uh, The Septuagint says spirit in verse 11. But again, you know, I say ambiguity abounds because Psalm 104, verse 4, it's a familiar passage. It says, he makes the winds, his messengers, flaming fire, his ministers. 
And we know from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 7, that that is talking about angels. Those are angels. Now, the desert wind uh, take of verse 9 in the NIV, that really is quite interesting because uh, the people of that time already believed that demons and evil angels lived in the desert or were trapped under the earth in the desert. Uh, For an example, on the Day of Atonement, they would send the scapegoat out for Azazel into the desert. In other words, all of the sin of the people was put onto the scapegoat and then evil was sent back to where it belongs into the desert to die. Uh, That idea, it does continue into the New Testament. If you remember Luke chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus encounters the demoniac, it says that uh, the garrison demoniac was driven into the desert by the uh, demons. Luke 11, verse 24, talks about demons, how when they're cast out, they pass through waterless places. In other words, deserts. Not to mention that uh, Jesus encounters his own battle with Satan, Lo and behold, in the desert, where he's tempted after uh, 40 days of fasting. So was it a wind? Was it a spirit? I'm not sure if they would have seen a difference. You know, the enemy will sweep through like a desert wind. In other words, I think it's a demonically empowered Babylon. Any thoughts there, Nick? No good observations. Well, who were the gods or the god of the Chaldeans in verse 11? Because it does say something about their god there. That's right. Um, Strength or might is the god of Babylon. uh, Their military might, their strength, their power, that uh, that was their god. And so their doctrine is might makes right. Um, their uh, dogma is aggression. And so, um, yeah, they were all about the vulgar display of power. What do you think? Yeah, one could even say that is a, a doctrine of demons. <laughs> hmm. You know, their strength is their God. That's right. I don't think we're always reading that correctly, however. There's there's another layer that we might be missing sometimes. You know, the Babylonians, they weren't... Uh, modern-day atheists, I mean, they had a pantheon of gods, and they worshipped them, and the head of that pantheon was the uh, god Marduk, sometimes called Bel, because Bel is the uh, word for Lord, so their Lord was Marduk, he was the ruler. I don't think the passage describes uh, the worship of strength per se, but rather idolatry, because they, like everyone else in the ancient Near East, they believed that the strength of their nation was due to the strength of their god, or gods. So if you contrast this to the end of the book, in chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, verse 19, Habakkuk declares that his strength is in his god, Yahweh. So I wonder if uh, verse 11 here should read, they whose strength is in their god. But maybe that's uh, too much interpretation. This, I think, though, if that is the case, that would shock the Israelite reader, because They already know that Yahweh is the Most High God, so how can one of these lower gods, one of these created beings, one of these fallen beings, how can they come and swallow up Israel? Well, as Yahweh has been trying to tell Habakkuk, it's because Yahweh will permit it. It's Yahweh's will. Any thoughts there, Nick? No, that's good stuff. 
You have any thoughts on verse 11 about the Septuagint? Because the Septuagint does differ there from the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, the only thing I see here is it. it so the question would be, um, depending upon um, whether you're reading from the Septuagint or maybe a, a, a English translation. It, the, the, so the question is: Is the God of Babylon their strength, or is God's strength on display in what happens? And so. Again, just depending upon which text you're reading, that's kind of what it boils down to: is is um, what is being referenced in relation to the strength here. Um, what do you think? You know, I think for our audience, in case they don't have a Septuagint, I'll just quote uh, verses ten and eleven for them from the Septuagint. It says, "He will delight in kings, and tyrants will be his toys, and he'll mock at every fortress, and he'll throw up a mound and conquer it." And then the spirit will have a change and pass through and make and will make atonement. And this is the strength of my God. So the Septuagint clearly links the he of the coming enemy with the spirit. And that continues the ambiguity of the heavenly earthly warfare. Uh, this spirit then leading the armies of Babylon uh, will succeed in making atonement. In other words, atonement for Israel's idolatry is carried out through its destruction, just like God promised would happen in their covenant. Remember the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And this does correspond well to other Old Testament passages. You know, earlier we mentioned the band of destroying angels from Psalm 78, verse 49, when Yahweh brought destruction upon Egypt in the Exodus. Also, though, Ezekiel chapter 9 Verses 1 through 2, uh, Yahweh calls them that he calls to uh, destroy executioners. They're coming according to his calling. And if you're reading your Septuagint, then Ezekiel 14, 21 will call those executioners for evil avengers. And uh, if you're reading your Septuagint, you'll also have the wisdom of Sirach. So Sirach 39, verses 28 through 30, says that God created four winds, or four spirits, for vengeance, and their purpose is to abate the wrath of Yahweh. Hmm, let's see, four evil avengers, four spirits for vengeance, hmm, four horsemen of Revelation 6, anybody? Anyone? Any takers? Well, something to think about. <laughs> so we definitely have <laughs> some things going on in the background here. Now, Nick, verse 12, unless you have any other thoughts, why do you think Habakkuk uh, has this idea that they're not going to die? So, yeah, verse 12 reads, <clears throat> are you not from everlasting? So this is Habakkuk talking to God, right? You, you are not, uh, are you not from everlasting? Oh, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So there's an ancient scribal tradition that says that this should read, instead of we shall not die, you shall not die. Um, or as the new um, English translation puts it, you are immortal. It's a, a parallel emphasizing God being from everlasting to everlasting. You're from everlasting, um, and um, it's a rhetorical question. Are you not from everlasting? Of course, of course he is. And you are immortal. Uh, you shall not die. Either die death doesn't 
um, apply to uh, God, to the to deity. Now, the reason, though, uh, we have this difference here in uh, in in verse twelve, we shall not die, is because this is what's called a scribal interpretive gloss, um, and it's it's a it's something that scribes did because they they had such a high view of holy god that there were certain concepts that are um that 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 they didn't want to apply they thought it was um irreverent for certain categories to be applied to the deity one of those would be death we can't connect death with god even if we're denying that death doesn't apply to him and so um, the the Masoretic texts, the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they all read we, but I believe that this reading is intrusive. I believe it's uh, based on that scribal interpretive gloss, that scribal tradition. The, the you, we, you, you, just it, it, again, it's intrusive. So um, it's more difficult to substantiate i understand that but i am partial to that more difficult reading because it just it's intended i think to be parallel you are you not are so he's talking about you god are you not from everlasting you shall not die and then what was the other parts you have ordained them you have established right and so i think it's you 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 instead of you we you you all right that's I say all that, though, and so sure, if sure. I'm wrong about that, and it is, we shall not die, then this is Habakkuk affirming the covenant of God with his people, uh, that is, with God's people, that even though things are going to be very bad, no good, awful, they're going to be terrible, he's saying, we're not going to die. Um, this, I think, you can connect to your remnant theology elsewhere in the prophets, right? There's always going to be a remnant. And so God, he's not going to wipe his people out entirely. And so Habakkuk says, we shall not die. But again, I'm just partial to the, you shall not die. And it's supposed to communicate, yeah, death has nothing on God. But anyway, uh, that's my take. Uh, What do you think, Alex? Well, I'll start out by... uh going the the other side of the coin there if the we reading mm-hmm. is to be taken so I'll, I'll favor that one to start out with then i think the idea is that habakkuk is hoping that babylon will just give them a slap on the wrist a correction sent by yahweh but being completely swallowed up by babylon is out of the question i mean that would be too evil in habakkuk's eyes and thus the following verses and his complaints to yahweh but if you are right, Nick, if, however, we should uh, sustain the, the you reading in order to be consistent with the parallel uh, verses referring to Yahweh not dying, then this could work pretty well with some of the other things I've been saying about the previous verses, namely that uh, the God of Babylon has not defeated or killed the God of Israel. In other words, uh, they believed that heaven and earth must match. And if a nation gets conquered on earth, it's because the God of that nation was defeated by the God of another nation in the heavenly realms. So Habakkuk's logic may go like this. He may say, okay, since Yahweh can't be defeated, therefore Israel won't be destroyed. 
and Yahweh will just simply give us a slap on the wrist. We'll be given a course correction. However, Yahweh is trying to help Habakkuk see that Judah is not getting a course correction. They're getting wiped out. And it's not the result of Yahweh being defeated. It's because Yahweh's wrath needs to be abated. And it's against his own people for idolatry. So I think the punishment will be more severe than Habakkuk thinks. And that's kind of what we're in the midst of right here is Habakkuk working through that and uh, trying to make sense out of that. Any thoughts there, Nick? Uh, No, I think we've upholstered that subject. (laughs) All right. Well, verse 13, he has this uh, question about the Chaldeans swallowing them up, even though, hey, would they really be allowed by Yahweh to swallow up those who are more righteous than they are? So what do you think, Nick? Were the Israelites more righteous than the Chaldeans? So um, I guess reading back anachronistically, um, one of the things Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, he talks about how the Israelites, um, 9 verses 4 and 5, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. I think that may help us, give us a little bit of insight as to what the Israelite uh, mind, the minds of the, the uh, people of Judah, what they were thinking in, to, in relation to the Babylonians. Hey, we've got the covenants. We're the ones the patriarchs came from us, right? We've got the law. We've got no one else. These other nations don't have it. And so I think that would have fed this, um, let's call it relative righteousness uh, idea that, yeah, we are more righteous because we have this stuff that you guys don't have. Well, as we've been talking about, based on the violence that Habakkuk has seen among the people, whether he's it's flesh and blood right in front of him, or he's seeing it in a vision, Judah can hardly be considered righteous uh, compared to, uh, uh, though, compared to the savage and the cruel Babylonians. Compared to them, well, eh, they were kind of the Vienna boy squire, all right? So they were, they had that going for them. But, you know, in terms of righteousness, um, they were still dropping the ball. Uh, What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, Israel was probably not more righteous than the Chaldeans. And and you reference Romans 9. That's a good one. Israel, they had every advantage when it came to righteousness. They were the possession of the Most High God. They had the law. They had the prophets, etc. But in the end, they were more evil and idolatrous than the original occupants of the Promised Land. We saw that in our cover of Manasseh from Second Chronicles 33, verse 9. And it says that Judah ended up even worse than North Israel, which was Jeremiah 3.11. So were the Chaldeans ruthless in warfare? Absolutely. But that was war, and everyone is ruthless in war. The whole point of Habakkuk's misunderstanding is that Israel had become just like any other nation of Gentiles. It's not just relative righteousness, but Judah has truly become terrible in every way. I mean, it's unsalvageable for now, and a simple correction will not work anymore. So therefore, time for captivity. Thoughts, Nick? Yeah, so, um, and you, you made a good point there. They had 
all this stuff, right? They had all the advantages that one could want spiritually, and yet they were still doing all this stuff. So, in a way, yeah, no, no, they weren't. Yeah, you could look at their behavior, perhaps, compared to the Babylonians, and maybe uh, get to the Vienna Boys Choir, like I said, but because they had all those advantages, and because they were dropping the ball so terribly, yeah, you're right, they... No, you're not more righteous. In fact, the argument could be made, you're more evil because to whom much is given, much is required. And you have just blown it, right? That's kind of God to Judah. But Well, Nick, verse 16, we have this language then where Habakkuk continues on talking about the Chaldeans uh, catching all the nations like fish in a net. And the Chaldeans, um, they, they capture nation after nation, now, what do you think is meant by their net? Because it says in verse 16 that they worship their net. So what is that, Nick? Yeah, and my English standard has a little different reading. Dragnet, same idea, right? Um, so I think we connect this with what we saw earlier in verse 11. We talked about their might, their strength being their God. And the figure used is one where the nations, Judah included, are these defenseless fishes and the babylonians are the fishermen that are catching in the net of their might the net of their strength all these helpless nations and so net i think is a figure for their power and they worship that strength they worship their might the strength of their might if you want to put it that way and so uh, i think that's the connection um, for me what do you think you know, it's interesting, the word net used throughout verses 14 through 17 are two different words in the original language. The first net mentioned is a small net. That's what catches each nation. And then whatever's caught is thrown into the larger net, and that's where they store all of the fish that they have caught together. And that is a fitting description of the Babylonian Empire, who conquered, captured, and mixed together all of the defeated people groups. Hey, wait a second. Mixing all of the collected people into one group. Wait, that sounds like Babel. Oh, wait. Babel? Babylon? There we are. Now, talking about nations as fish, that idea, it continues in the New Testament. And I think that's on purpose. Remember the parable of the dragnet in Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50? Uh, That's about the judgment of all the nations at the end of time. Well, there's John chapter 21, where Peter is dragging in a huge catch of fish, bringing it to Jesus, and the number of fish was 153. Now, some think that since they believed the total number of different fish variety in the sea totaled 153, then the idea would be that Jesus would gather all the nations to himself through the apostles and the church. And so that's why I said earlier, this uh, reversal of what's about to happen to them, this uh, Babylonian captivity, the real reversal doesn't actually happen 70 years later. They just get to come out of slavery then. The real reversal happens with Jesus and the church, where the nations who are mixed together are now going to be caught by fishers of men brought back to God, Babel reversed through Jesus, the apostles, and the church. Now, I have some other thoughts on this whole net 
idea. I'm curious about Habakkuk verse 14. Uh, 114 says, Habakkuk, um, his complaint is that the nations will have no ruler over them since the Chaldeans will catch them all in their net. Again, helpless fish, right? I would guess, this is just my guess, that this again refers back to the idea of each nation having a territorial ruler in the heavenly realms. Again, you get that from Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 through 9, Acts 17, verse 26, Psalm 82. And since the nations are about to be consolidated into Babylon, then the divine allotment of powers and lands are about to be drastically changed. There are no more rulers for each nation, but they're all going to be mixed together now under the singular power of Babylon, Babylon's power. So when he talks about what sacrificing to their nets in verse 16, I take that sacrifice language that Babylon makes to their nets as an allusion to idolatry. In other words, they're saying, thank you, Babylonian pantheon, and thank you, Most High Bell Lord Marduk, for empowering us to rule the world. You know, this will be the battle that Judah has to deal with while in Babylonian captivity. Uh, The idea that uh, did the other gods defeat Yahweh? Did Marduk win? And if not, how will we be assured while in our current condition of captivity? And so thus enters Daniel, and you know the rest. So this is uh, familiar territory to to your Bible reader. And that's the end of chapter 1. Nick, any final thoughts on chapter 1? So, um, I mean, there's a lot of questions that... uh that as we kind of just back away from uh, the the details of the verses and, and kind of do a broad overview of the chapter, I think there's questions that um, uh, come to our minds, or can come to our minds, and and you know just uh, can try and work through some of these things. And one question that comes to my mind is from verse two, where Habakkuk says, "I cry for help." But you, you will not hear. And so I think, I think a lot of people grapple with, um, why, why doesn't God answer my prayers, right? Why, why does it seem like my prayers go unanswered? Um, and so I thought, you know, what do you think, Alex? Do you have uh, any insight uh, into, into that question? Yeah, that's a tough one, you know. Um, sometimes the quick answer is, uh, God does answer your prayer, but sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no, or sometimes it's maybe, or perhaps wait, you know, just wait. And uh, thinking, uh, thinking about Habakkuk, you know, he was he was in the midst of, of national judgment, right? And so uh, sometimes um, what the way God answers prayer is just not the way you would want it to be answered. Um, and so that certainly was the case with Habakkuk. He, he didn't want... Israel to be swallowed up, but he did want the violence to stop. He did want uh, evil to be judged. He wanted uh, justice to be carried out. And uh, part of the problem is, too, is that, uh, you know, good and evil, the battle between uh, good and evil is real. And so that means there's going to be real uh, battles. Think about the prayer of Daniel, 
that uh, was answered, but it took a couple weeks for the angel to come to him because he uh, got caught up doing battle with the prince of Persia. And so you never know what's going on in the unseen realm that could be battling things. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it comes down to faith, where uh, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of Habakkuk. Um, the, uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. Yeah, that's New Testament theme that carries all the way through. Uh, those are just the thoughts off the top of my head. What do you think, Nick? No, I think those are good. Um, other things that come to my mind, you know, they, we're told that sometimes, you know, the, the reason prayer is going in. So the psalmist says, if I cherished iniquity in my heart, you would not have heard. And so I think sin um, could could hinder prayers um, individually, collectively perhaps also. Um. James says, you know, if uh, you you do not have because you do not ask, and then when you ask, you ask wrong, you ask amiss, right? So um, asking for the wrong thing, for the wrong motive, or what have you. Um, I mean, those are those are kind of again, uh, like you said, kind of the the, the short answers. But um, you know, you, you brought up uh, the the situation with Habakkuk in his day. And it's reminiscent of Jeremiah. He talked about Jeremiah a bit earlier. Jeremiah is actually told three different times, don't pray for these people, right? Stop praying for these people. Um, I, so it seems like you can get to a point nationally, corporately, where um, you're so far gone, court, God's not going to hear his, his ears are closed to that kind of prayer um, or prayer made in that kind of situation. Um, I also think of First John, the end of First John chapter 5, you know, that uh, we're not supposed to pray f- about sin, uh, those who are trapped in sin and a death, right? You're not supposed to pray for that. Um, right. So, you know, there are these instances where, you know, well, why, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Well, here are some reasons, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's a good question. It's a tough question. Free will plays uh, a role, I think. You know, uh, does yeah. We want prayers for other people, but uh, there are some things that God will not make other people do. <laughs> so it's like that's right. No matter how much you pray, and then there are other things where uh, maybe God will do something, but uh, don't give up too quickly. You know, Jesus told a parable about how we should always pray and not give up in prayer. And so sometimes you yep. just have to keep praying, like Elijah kept praying for the rain not to come. And then he prayed for it to come. And it was that perseverance in prayer that made a difference. So there's probably uh, there's probably a hundred uh, good answers, and yet it doesn't answer all of what people may be going through or praying for. And so that's what makes mm-hmm. the question so tough. Yeah. Um, something else that comes to mind, uh, you know, we mentioned relative righteousness earlier. I mean, is that a real thing, right? Um are there things or people or nations or actions that are more righteous than others? Things that are more righteous than other things or, or nations more righteous than other nations. That's kind of where Habakkuk is. Actions that are more righteous than other actions even. Uh, what do you think, Alex? You know, I've gone back and forth on that because that's a really good question. Uh, I remember in, you know, years ago I would say, oh, it's not real. You know, you're only, you're only righteous um, if you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, you know, his righteousness. Um, and that's true uh, on, on one level. And yet, 
there are a lot of places that it seems like in the in, in the scriptures that uh, where there are things and people and nations and actions that are more righteous than others, where distinctions are made. I mean, all, all sin can separate you from God if it's unrepentance, uh, but there are certain sins where Paul says is they're distinct they're more dangerous the bodily sins sexual sins um it does talk about uh james the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective it's just like well i mean what what good does that do to the christian if they're all righteous she's like thanks for stating the obvious she's like well no yeah (laughs) (laughs) she's like well maybe maybe it's not obvious maybe it it does make a difference Uh, i think peter talks about husbands treating their wives well so that their prayers won't be hindered it's just like oh yeah like you're right like sin makes a difference so there may be relative righteousness uh, on the one hand there's something to it maybe that is real and it just i mean obviously everything is context driven but this is a question that's caused me to step back and maybe not paint with such a broad brush what do you think nick no, that's you mentioned sin and i think there are different degrees of sin i mean why right. Why are some sins punished more harshly than others? It's because of just how heinous certain sins are. Um, someone has said that you know sin sin is missing the mark, right? Um, hamartia and all that. Sin is missing the mark. Evil is the distance traveled. It's how how badly did you miss? And I, I've liked that. I think there are there are sins that are worse than others, and I think there are on the other side there are acts that can be more righteous than others. Um, I think about you know um, why, why do we why do we do the things that we do and the things that we do are they counted differently based on our motivation uh, behind it like you can you can do something a good act a good deed um, with with the wrong motives it's does the does that make the action unrighteous I don't think so it's still a good thing but you did it for a different reason or. Uh, or maybe not the highest reason. Let's put it right. that way, right? The highest motivation would be what love, right? Yeah. Greatest of these is love, and so you can do uh, an act of faith uh, or an act based on hope, but there's something about doing an act, acting out of love, which is even greater than that. It seems like based on what Paul says in First Corinthians thirteen. Well, and what about the and, wolves in sheep's clothing? Right? They do lots of good things. But it's all as bait, right? To lure people That's in, right. to devour them. So That's right. And so um, I think there are, I think this idea of relative righteousness, that there are things. So something else that comes to mind is in Ephesians chapter 4, you get a lot of instruction uh, about practical holiness and practical living. One of the things that Paul talks about is um, theft, for example. That him who steals, steal no longer. Right, that's good. Don't steal, right? But let him work with his hands. That's even better, right? To work. But here's the supreme thing, and perhaps the most righteous thing, the best thing, so that he may have something to share with those who are in need. And so I think I think that's you know, not doing something that's good. There's something better though, and that is being productive. And then there's something best, and even let's say supernatural, where. Now we're coming in and we're trying to help people who are in need. So I think, I think that might be illustrative of what we're talking about here in terms of, you know, there are actions, yeah, that are more righteous than others. That's right. Which is, you know, kind of goes against the grain of what we've, I think, typically thought about <laughs> good and bad and righteousness and sin and all that. So Absolutely. 
Um, one of the things that comes out in Habakkuk is here, especially highlighted here in chapter one, is kind of this uh, this argument between God and Habakkuk. I mean, Habakkuk is, well, he's incensed, it seems. You know, God, you're going to use the Babylon. How could you use the Babylonians? You have this back and forth, and I think it's, um, if it's not the only example, it's one of the few examples where you see this back and forth between God and the prophet. And it, for me, the question is, is it okay to argue with God? Is it okay to even get angry with God? What do you think, Alex? You know, I would say uh, it is. It is. But there's definitely uh, a good way to end that and a bad way to end that. <laughs> right. So yeah. uh, Habakkuk ends it the right way by submitting. But it doesn't mean he wasn't allowed to wrestle with it. Interesting, that term wrestling, you know, that's Israel's name. Israel means one who wrestles with God. Yeah, that was Jacob's experience as he uh, headed out of his uncle Laban's house and in, about to encounter his uh, brother Esau again. Um, you see in the Psalms, David arguing with God, Job lamenting against God. Lots of people argue and get angry with God, and I think God is okay with that. I think he's tough enough to handle that, and he even welcomes that. I wonder if uh, sometimes a relationship with God can become bitter and sour when you don't let that process take place because even in the psalms you see at the end when it comes down to it there is still a trust and a submission and a continuance of uh, faith in yahweh so i say yeah it, it is okay to argue it's okay to get angry with god um but don't stop don't stop <laughs> no that's i think that's that's good stuff right there um i think of a lot of the the psalms that are lamentations and and they they ask hard questions like Habakkuk does here you know where are you why can't I see you why are you hidden and uh, and that can that can produce feelings of ire but you're right how do we handle that uh, what do we do with it um, do we allow it to embitter us to the point that we just we walk away and hey I'm done I've had enough God you know, you you did you didn't answer my prayers the way I thought you should. You didn't do what I thought you should. Well, surprise, God doesn't usually operate the way that we do. Thank God, right? Right. Um, that uh, that He is actually more wise and more knowledgeable than we give Him credit for. Um, so yeah, what I, you're right. It's okay to argue with God. I mean, I think that can deepen a relationship. I mean, this whole podcast is based on you know, going back and forth and in some cases even arguing, debating a point. But, um, you know, I, I think that's good. One, uh, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And I think the same thing is true for our relationship with God, that he can sharpen us and produce in us the good things that he wants so that we can be the most useful for him. But again, we got we to gotta be vulnerable. We got to allow ourselves to have that kind of relationship with God and that's not very comfortable yeah um, yeah and I think even even when we uh, argue with a brother you know at the end of the day that's still a good brother and that's right. I think when you argue with God at the end of the day God says you're still a good child like you're still my good son or my good daughter right. and I think that's uh, important to remember because he does operate very much like a like a family operates and even when your own children 
get mad at you or argue with you doesn't change how you feel about that child. You're you're willing to <laughs> to hash it out with them, but in the end, you, you still love them. You still care for them. And we reciprocate by saying, "And you're a good God. <laughs> you're right. still a good God." That's right. Here's one for our American audience because I know we're international. Um, <laughs> America. That's right. So one of the things that comes up in Habakkuk here and throughout the whole book is, I mean, God is God has ordained Babylon cruel, wicked Babylonians, to come and bring punishment and persecution to his people. So how in the world, how could God ordain or establish a godless nation or a godless government which persecutes Christians? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, For me, this answer has changed over the years as well. (laughs) I guess that's the thing about tough questions is you're allowed to change your mind. (laughs) Yes. But um, it does seem like before the church, before the cross, uh, even before Babylon here, there is a definite establishment of nations and their authority. And uh, even when we get to the New Testament, you do have Romans 12, or is it uh, 13? Romans 13, which says that... uh, the government powers have mm-hmm. been uh, established by God for the punishing of evil. Free will plays a role in this again. Um, there's a difference between authorizing or ordaining a, a structure and uh, authorizing or ordaining uh, everything done by every person within that structure. And so uh, I think the Christians of the first century learned this. You know, the emperors were not... Uh, friends of the church. <laughs> so, mm. uh, and yet, they understood that the institution of government was a God-ordained thing. And so it's interesting how they endure persecution for a couple hundred years until the tide is finally turned in their favor, and in the 300s, you get a ceasefire, and then a sponsorship from the government mm. uh, for, in favor of Christianity. And so I think that... Overall, the the establishment of government, the structure, is a God-ordained thing meant to punish evil, to carry out good. But that structure uh, can be abused and uh, used for ungodly purposes depending on who is operating within that structure. And so – and even that is a fine line, right? Because it doesn't mean we're going to change the world by um, having uh, Christians take over politics because – uh, lo and behold, Christians make mistakes and do bad things too. <laughs> lo and yeah. behold, people masquerade as Christians and do bad things. So, that's right. So that's another uh, tricky question. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I mean, it is tough. I mean, especially for our American listeners, you know, we live in America, right? Land of the free, home of the brave, but we're, we're a Christian nation. You know, we've got this country established on Judeo-Christian values and principles and things like that. Uh, based on the Bible, and even though there is an increasing number of more secular people with more more secular perspective, right? We still we still cling to that. We still hold to it. And, and I mean, I know some Christians look at that and you know want to just uh, divorce themselves from that, and and that's fine. At the same time, I, I'm grateful for. Uh, the, the freedoms that we enjoy, but what happens if 
another country arises in order to um, bring punishment upon us, upon America, right? Is God, is he free to do that? And what would be our response to that? Hey, we're a Christian name. Would it be similar to Habakkuk, right? And then I also think about our brothers and sisters in foreign countries that don't have the freedoms and the privileges and all that that go along with us here in America. They they live under hostile regimes in countries where Islam is dominant. And if you subscribe to a different religion, if you become a Christian, I mean, that's a death sentence for you. Yeah. And, and yet they have a very different perspective. Like, uh, uh, So this happened a couple weeks ago where you had that... Um, America pulling out of Syria, right? We're pulling our troops out of Syria. And man, you want to talk about a kerfuffle, right? On the on social media, people, there were certain Christians that I'm friends with who were livid about this. And man, how can we abandon our allies and, you know, yada, yada. These Christians, yeah, okay. So we've, some kind of protection, military protection has been removed. And perhaps that will lead to more persecution of Christians. But how do we as Christians, are, how are we supposed to look at persecution, right? How are we supposed to look at that? We we think about it differently than the world does. We're supposed to anyway, right? right. Consider it all joy, says James. Peter talks about how we shouldn't be surprised. And if you're glorifying God, if you suffer for the name of Christ, um, yeah, it's uh, God, one, he has the freedom to do whatever he wants with the nations. It's his world. He created it. He is. He raises nations. He brings down nations. Yeah. Um, and and the consequences of that could be persecution. And yet, how how do we look at it? We're supposed to look at it different. So you know, it reminds me of um, something I actually it came across a few a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And uh, I'm possibly taking a trip to to Rome in January. And one of the places I, I'd I'd like to see is the monastery dedicated to uh, Clement. Now. Um, hmm. Clement was a bishop during the uh, persecution uh, under the reign of Emperor Trajan, and so Trajan he he had uh, Clement executed. So you have this monastery uh, dedicated to him, but they found underneath the monastery an older monastery also dedicated hmm. to him. So you have the top level, which was like from I'm forgetting the dates, like. I don't know, Middle Ages sometime. And then you had the level underneath it that goes all the way back to like, oh, I don't know, four or 500 AD. And then underneath uh-huh. that, they found another layer. <laughs> <laughs> and that layer at the very bottom was to the uh, Roman god Mithras. And so it's interesting how on the ashes of Roman uh, persecution was built this dedication to Clement. And on top of that, another dedication to Clement. And here you have 2,000 years later, like Clement is still there. His mark is still in Rome. But where's Trajan? His mark isn't there. <laughs> no one remembers yeah. him. In fact, people only remember him because of Christians. And so it's interesting how at the time, Trajan would have been the the top of the world. And Clement was nobody. And because Clement sacrificed himself he was faithful unto death over time that has been reversed completely where now trajan is nobody (laughs) but clement is somebody and he has left his mark on rome not trajan so 
that's a, that's an interesting sort of meta perspective, meta narrative perspective. It's like, well, um, what things look like now, if we just continue faithfully, even in the face of persecution and martyrdom, uh, that is the that is the foundation for which things will be reversed at a time in the future. So obviously the grand reversal being the the resurrection and the day of judgment, but. Hmm. And then, of course, uh, Habakkuk brings us the age-old question, the problem of evil, right? Um, if God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil in the world? Um, if he's all good, well, he should uh, not allow evil, right? If he's all powerful, then he must have something. He must be powerful enough to stop the evil. Well, since there's evil, then God is not all good or God is not all powerful. That's kind of how the question has historically been framed, right? Right. Um, what do you think, Alex? Oh, man. So I'm probably <laughs> going to get myself into trouble here. But uh, <laughs> again, my answer has changed over the years. So I'd agree with the first premise, God is all good. Uh, the second premise, God is all powerful. Um, I don't. I wouldn't word it that way. Uh, the way I think about it is, is God is the most powerful, but there are things that God can't do. Um, he he can't violate his own his own uh character his own rules and in in person um no he can't create a rock bigger than he can lift um no he he can't violate our free will either uh at the very least he won't at least and so um you know why why is there evil free will is part of that also um you know not everything is uh, I'm an open theist, so I don't think everything is foreknown or uh, or foreordained. And so um, that's the, the Calvinism and Arminianism uh, debate. And, and that's what we're talking about actually in Sunday in our church. And so I actually believe uh, God knows about all possibilities, um, but he doesn't know which possibility will become reality for the future. And he's always... Uh, getting new information, waiting to see what we'll do next. You know, there are these verses that talk about God testing us to see what's in our heart and to there are verses where it says he doesn't know things. And there are verses that say, um, you know, he took Israel out of Egypt and did not take the shorter route because the Israelites, he was not sure if they might turn back or not. <laughs> and so he took them the harder route to cross the Red Sea. And so it's like, well, why would God not be sure? <laughs> so, and so uh, this is a, I think reality is a more dynamic, interactive, um, back and forth between us and our creator than perhaps um, is allowed for in Calvinism or Arminianism. And so why is there evil? I think there's evil because there are real battles, like there are real losses, real victories. And within the realm of possible futures, there are definite things which God knows he can bring about, but uh, there are things in which he's not sure if he can bring about. And so, and he tells us what those things are and what those things aren't. So, um, you know, we have this notion that if something bad is going to happen to me, then God could stop it, you know, on the spot. But that's not always true. I mean, again, the the angel sent by God to reply to Daniel, it took him two weeks. He was delayed. He didn't get there in, in the time he wanted to get there because there was a real spiritual battle taking place. So that's kind of my spitballing, you know, a little summary, little chestnuts of uh, <laughs> what, what I'm thinking. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my explanation for why there's evil in the world is because um, 
not just because of sin, but also because of spiritual warfare, uh, evil entities, powers of darkness. And um, I think we have assumed that God can do some things that he can't. Um, and so I know that that makes people nervous thinking that uh, he's not all powerful, but he is still the most powerful. There's still no other being who's as powerful or knowledgeable as he is. And so just a just a little shift to me that makes more sense out of evil in the world. But this is a this is a problem people grapple with. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, um and unfortunately it's a problem that has driven a lot of people away from God, right? That that God he cannot exist if there is evil in the world. But the the thing with that is it it doesn't um it doesn't make well sense. <laughs> uh, it's not it's not reasonable. Um because here's the thing, how do you know what evil is in the first place, right? You must have some kind of objective criteria whereby you're able to differentiate between that which is evil and that which is good. Yeah. That's some kind of moral law, and if there's a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. Mind, right. And so um, uh, I think that kind of... Working backwards from the problem, I think you can get to a place where there there is a there is a God. Right. You know, who is that God and right. and the lawgiver and all that? You know, but that's you got to work through that. But um, the thing is, and so if we want to approach it logically, I think there is a way of addressing. I, I do believe that God is uh, all powerful. I believe that He is all knowing, and I believe that He is all good. Well. Um, there's objective evil in the world. What do we do with that? Well, um, and this is, this is again, kind of classically how this problem has been worked through is that um, any evil in the world that God would allow, he has a morally sufficient reason for allowing it. And even though we may not know that, God does. And so he has some morally sufficient reason. Again, that's, that's classically how the problem has been worked through. Uh, taking the premises and reasoning to a conclusion, and that actually it's a it's a sound logical argument that that uh, a lot of people have used um, in in an apologetic. But here's the thing, and I and having taught a lot about the problem of evil and suffering in the world, and having read about it a lot and done a lot of uh, writing on it. Um, for some people, there's, I mean, there's no good answer, right? Especially when it comes home to you and to your doorstep, right. right? You don't want a logical, how do you parse this out, right? When we start asking the why question, um, I'll tell you this: if we if we work to a conclusion where we say, well, God must not exist because evil is in the world, we lose the resources that we need in order to see us through the problem in the first place. Um, we don't have the resources in and of ourselves in order to walk through heavy things like this um, and why why I think God is uh, necessary and essential for making sense of the problem of evil, uh, especially when it comes to us. He's the one who provides us with the resources we need in times of suffering and in, when we see the evil in the world around, a lot of evil in the world, and yet only through, I'm, I'm persuaded, only through a theistic worldview um, can we even begin to grapple with this? Otherwise, hey, well, I mean, it's just evil's just the product of a dispassionate universe. All we are is stardust, right? And we're heading toward our own demise in the explosion of our sun 
in a billion years or whatever, right? So <laughs> what's the purpose of it all, right? A very nihilistic view, but you know, um, I think about warfare, and I think you know there are there are precise tactical uh, attacks that can be carried out sometimes, and there are times when that can't be carried out, where something uh, more more of a broad, massive attack has to be t- carried out. And you see God doing this in the Bible, right? There was the flood. Like, that's a that's a big reset. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There are other big resets, you know, where entire cities are taken out, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, now, the question is, you know, is God going to do that with evil today? Is he going to broadly, like, eliminate all evil? And the answer is yes, he is, but it's going to take a broad uh, approach, and that's what we consider the day of judgment. I mean, that's when the the curtain is uh, rolled away. It's rolled up and uh, judgment takes place and evil will be vanquished. Like that's the reset. That's what we're looking forward to uh, on this side of the cross, if you're faithful. But um, the question then is until then, why is God not uh, tactically and precisely removing uh, evil from the world, one at a time, especially when we talk about, okay, there's a guy who's about to rape a little kid. Why isn't God tactically, supernaturally removing that specific person before he can commit such a heinous thing against someone totally innocent? And so that's where I come down and I I say, well, in those moments, I actually believe that's where we have assumed that God can do things that maybe he can't do. And so, um, you know, why couldn't God, uh, why couldn't God's angel get to Daniel on the first day he prayed since that was the intention of God? It's like, well, the intention didn't work out because of spiritual warfare. And so I think that's what we want, though. We want God to tactically prevent and remove evil from our lives and from the lives of those who are innocently hurt, uh, through uh, people who are evil. And I think that God can't always do that. And that's I know that's going to get me in trouble with, with some people, but there are things that God can't always do. And so uh, that's that's my position. That's how I make sense out of evil in the world theologically. And so... Well, even to, to borrow your example there, um, I mean, so for me... You know, with the the omnipotence view, um, the question would be: so, so why doesn't God intervene? Could He intervene? He could. He's all powerful, right? Well, then the question would be: well, why doesn't He? And that's, I think, um, more difficult to answer. Which is why I took a step back and said, "Okay, He can't." <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. And right. and it so. <clears throat> Yeah, and that's. And I, don't, I don't have a good answer right now. No, so. no. Well, nobody. <laughs> and it's, nobody has for thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, nobody. So it's it's. Uh, unfortunately, this is one one thing that uh, sword swordplay can't solve for you. But <laughs> <laughs> all other things we can solve for you. So please tune yeah. in <laughs> to another episode. <laughs> so that's uh, what we do here. Yeah, let's let's end on a on a. A high note after that kind of walk <laughs> through the valley, the shadow of death. Yeah, that's right. This, this was after hours, swordplay after hours here. That's, that's right. That's one, right. we're gonna do one minute sermons now Ooh, as we kind of wind sermons. down here. 
And um, this, of course, Alex and I, we're both preachers, and we know Sunday's coming. We want to help all the preachers out there in the audience with their sermons for Sunday. And we're going to give you two good starts on two good sermons, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and you can put those together. Basically, it works like this. I have selected a song title. Alex does not know what I have selected. He has selected a song title. I don't know what he has selected. We're going to give these to each other one at a time, and we have to come up in uh, 60 seconds or less with a uh, text and the the beginnings of a a sermon. Uh, So let me get one minute on the clock here for me and for you. All right. Uh, let's see. Do I go first or do you? I think it's me this time. You go first? Okay. I think so. All right. I better get my timer out too. So, Nick, today your one-minute sermon will be on a song which uh, comes from the classical era. And oh uh, there are no words, no words, but the song does have a title, so you'll have to work off of that. And the song is by Vivaldi, and it is the first movement of the Four Seasons. It's called Spring. (laughs) So you have one minute to preach about Spring by Vivaldi, and go. It's the time when kings go off to war, and yet David, springtime, he is home at the castle. Uh, at his in his kingdom and that's when he sees uh, a lady named uh, Bathsheba bathing herself he sees her takes her it's the perfect crime until she comes out comes back to him she's pregnant and then he has her husband Uriah the Hittite murdered on the battlefield no one knows again the perfect crime except God saw it and it it displeased him he sent Nathan the prophet to him you are the man. And David repents greatly. We have a psalm that's devoted to that as well, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, uh, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David sought God's uh, grace and mercy. We should as well. There you go. One minute. Spring. Second uh, <laughs> Samuel 12, by the way. Oh, nice. 11 and 12. Nice. 11 and 12. Well done. Okay. <laughs> so we go from the classical era all the way to the king of pop, Michael Jackson for you. MJ. Um, <laughs> this is his song, um, Human Nature. If they say, why, why, tell them that it's human nature. Why, why? Does she do me that way? <laughs> nice. Human nature, nice. Alex. One minute on the clock, 60 seconds, and go. It is within human nature to know that there is a creator. If you go to Romans chapter 1, uh, it will say that uh, uh, God has left his uh, fingerprint, if you will, on creation, but uh even though that's been revealed, the unrighteous suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But I believe that we are innately, within our human nature, uh, we are deists, we are theists, 
and it is through sin and unrighteousness that we have to ignore his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, which has been understood through that which has been made. And so the idea for us is that, yeah, there is this moral compass within us. There is this idea of good and evil that we inherently know about, and that is a sign for you to seek out your creator. And Paul said in the sermon on Mars Hill that he's not far from each one of you, Acts 17. And even though some grope like blind men in the dark, he is there waiting to be found. Time. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I know you wanted me to talk about the sin nature, but I said no. (laughs) Uh, Instead, it went with the God gene. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today. (laughs) Thank you for uh, listening. We do want to let you know that you can find our archives in the Google Play Music Store, also in the iTunes Store. You can go to those respective places. You'll find episodes there to download to your particular device. Take it with you on the go. Also, leave a review. Share it on social media. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast. That's right. If you have any questions, send that to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We appreciate you tuning in to uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. Join us next time as we go through Habakkuk chapter uh, chapter 2. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.